It's going to be the ballot or the bullet. After we get our people registered, we can then organize that voting strength and channel it in the direction that will get immediate results for the benefit of our people. We can sweep our enemies right out of office, but we will not be able to do it sitting around talking about select and elect your own candidate. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was from Malcolm X's famous and controversial The Ballot or the Bullet speech at Cory Methodist Church in Cleveland, Ohio. While we await movement on big issues from Ukraine to the Supreme Court nomination, and while we skip past the Oscar slap that has occupied the headlines so far this week, let's move from 1964 to the developments in our democracy today. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, March 15th. Let's kick off with a look at the ongoing investigation of the January 6th insurrection. So while it hasn't made major headlines yet, there was a really big development this week in the January 6th insurrection, and it was a ruling from a federal judge actually on attorney-client privilege and the disclosure of emails. But it was the rest of the ruling that was so significant. Judge David Carter, in his ruling, he laid out that he thought President Trump had more likely than not attempted to illegally obstruct Congress as part of a criminal conspiracy when he tried to subvert the 2020 elections on January 6th. It is, by all accounts, the first time a sitting federal judge has ruled that a president committed a crime while in office. Now, that ruling is not actually a conviction because the ruling itself was about an order to release to the January 6th committee 101 emails from John Eastman, the former law school dean at Chapman University, who had been advising and Trump on strategies to get Pence to decertify the Electoral College votes. And judge actually reviewed each of the individual emails. He ruled that 10 of the emails were covered by attorney-client privilege because they didn't relate to this moment. But 101 emails have to be turned over to the January 6th committee. Chapman University has been holding on to them, awaiting this ruling from the judge. So it's the latest in rejections of attorney-client privilege and executive privilege. We also got, saw another development this week. We learned that President Biden had turned down an effort by Dan Scavino, who is the me social media manager for Trump, who is asserting executive privilege on all of his work. And we learned uh, today as the January 6th committee prepares to bring contempt proceedings against uh, Scavino and also against Peter Navarro, another aide, that Biden had declined to exert executive privilege, found it not in the best interests of the country. So these are kind of big, you know, ongoing kind of wins for the January 6th investigation and for the committee itself. Uh, the question is, will they be enough and will they be fast enough? It has all been a matter of trying to slow down the clock as the January 6th committee tries to speed up to move as much as possible before the midterm elections, because if they lose the House, the committee gets disbanded and the investigation stops in its tracks. But this ruling should have gotten more high-profile attention. It's a pretty big one in terms of the detailed way it lays out what happened on January 6th and Trump's role in it. Other things this week, um, another big one, Biden proposed his budget. Uh, we saw some big signals in there. You know, Biden's proposing a 10% boost for the Pentagon amid concerns around Ukraine and China, $773 billion. You're already seeing Republicans saying that's not enough. The reality is also that most of that call for increased funding would be spent long after 
this war in Ukraine is done, whichever way it ends up playing out. We also saw a real signal from Biden going to the middle when it comes to crime and policing. He proposed nearly $70 billion uh, for the FBI to try to drive down violent crime and $30 billion to put more police officers on the beat. So rejecting the defund the police kind of calls from the progressive side. He did also include and increase significantly $16 billion more money for climate change work across the federal government. So a total of about $45 billion is what the estimates are as people try to look through this whole proposal and pull it together. And then the other big thing in his budget was how he proposed to pay for it. So two big things. One is proposing a increase on the highest incomes for the top 1.8% of income earners, raising the top marginal income rate from 37 to 39.6%. Even bigger was the proposal for a billionaire minimum income tax, a minimum 20% tax rate that would be on both income and unrealized capital gains for U.S. households worth more than $100 million. Estimates are that would generate $360 billion in new revenue over 10 years. I thought there was a telling statement from the White House that they said, quote, President Biden is a capitalist and believes that anyone should be able to become a millionaire or a billionaire. He also believes that it is wrong for America to have a tax code that results in America's wealthiest households paying a lower tax rate than working families. So that's a very progressive stance on taxes, but a very moderate stance and support of capitalism. And it's part of what I think we should really take away from this proposed budget are the signals it sends. The budget is a very big deal and also a very small deal because Biden and every White House administration simply proposes a budget is then up to Congress to deliberate, create, craft, amend, what that budget is. So its most important element is fundamentally the signals it sends. It's where the White House and the administration is going, where it's tacking progressive, where it's tacking moderate, and how it's approaching some of these pieces. And there are also signals for us around what are going to be some of the big talking points and debates coming up in the midterm elections. Speaking of midterms, another piece to look at, there's been some ongoing conversations and efforts by the Trump camp looking at Michigan in particular. They had a MAGA mixer on Saturday, and there were a bunch of Republicans erupting into applause when a state house candidate called getting tear gassed at the January 6th insurrection the highlight of their life. So another candidate for Michigan State Senate who has had a lot of controversy, it's somebody who's been calling for Republicans to show up armed to monitor ballot counting has now said they're not going to live stream their remarks because people misinterpret what he says. Overall, what you're seeing is this kind of push, unlike anywhere else in the country, that the Trump camp and Trump himself is really trying to reorganize Republican leadership all the way down to the state legislature and county level uh, leadership. They've rolled out a questionnaire for candidates who are seeking Trump's endorsements asking them to do, among other things, define a rhino, Republican in name only, and to say if elected officials should be replaced for ignoring evidence of fraud. So this is all leading up to Trump coming into Michigan this coming Saturday for a rally, and is really being seen across the country as a barometer of will Trump's influence be able to really reshuffle and shift a state-level Republican party. If he can do it in Michigan, it both has important implications for the next few years in terms of the fairness of Michigan elections and as a battleground state, its implications for congressional and presidential leadership, 
but also the question of what is Trump's hold on the Republican Party and how does it play out in granular detail? Nowhere do we see this kind of dynamic within the Republican Party more explicitly than we do here in Michigan. Last thing I want to talk about is redistricting. I've been talking about it a lot, but getting questions, why is it still going? Um, well, partly we know that we got off to a late start. The census was delayed because of Trump, COVID further delayed. So there's, And we know that it is always, every 10 years, the census is a long and protracted fight. And then redistricting is another long and protracted fight because it impacts the balance of power for a decade. But we're getting close. There's only a handful of states left. So only four have yet to enact congressional maps. Um, we have a few more with legislative map dances as well. But of the last few that we're still waiting for the first map, and once we get the maps, of course, we'll have more lawsuits and litigation, but we're close to getting all of them. The four that are left with no congressional maps, Florida is the biggest, most important, has the most congressional votes. And it's really because the Republican Party itself is split on how hard to gerrymander. Governor DeSantis wants even more than what the state legislature has done in there. It's kind of a Republican on Republican fights around what's happening. That's the same in a different dynamic in Missouri and in New Hampshire. In Missouri, you're seeing split over whether to shift seats, you know, to go from a 6-2 Republican Democrat delegation to try to get to a 7-1 congressional divide by gerrymandering even more. But it would make several of the Republican seats more vulnerable. And so there's a camp that's saying, let's leave it at Democrats with two seats and keep our Republican seats safe. This has been a dance all over the country. And in New Hampshire, same thing, that whether they should try to take two lean Democrat seats, Republicans took control of the whole legislature last year. Should they make the two New Hampshire congressional seats, leave them both lean Democrat, which is what actually Republican Governor Sununu is saying, let's not gerrymander, or should we make one more of a toss-up seat and one more of a safe blue seat, which is what Republicans in the legislature are doing. So you've got Republican on Republican conflict in Florida, Missouri, New Hampshire. Louisiana is different. It's actually more the classic expectation. Democratic governor, GOP legislature, they're deadlocked. Democratic governor vetoed it. So the battle continues, whether it ends up in the courts and how it gets resolved. This is what we see in a split state leadership situation. And we also see that now kind of playing out in the courts. So you've got Ohio, as I mentioned, the maps in Ohio have been thrown out for a third time. This is a Republican-led, and the state courts are saying, nope, you're still gerrymandered, still gerrymandered. Whether they just keep throwing out new maps or whether they take over control of the map-making process remains to be seen. And then the latest development was actually from the U.S. Supreme Court throughout maps that were drawn and approved by the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Wisconsin State Supreme Court asked both the legislature and the governor after they deadlocked to submit maps. It picked the map that was proposed by Democratic Governor Evers. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that that actual map went too far by creating a new majority black district in Milwaukee. And it was it's being seen by many as another blow to the Voting Rights Act that The U.S. Supreme Court is saying you can't actually use the Voting Rights Act to create more districts except with a very, very narrow lens that they said Wisconsin did not apply. So it goes back to Wisconsin for being redrawn again. The impact of Wisconsin shifting that district is absolutely important in the dynamics of Wisconsin politics. The bigger implications are the further weakening of the Voting Rights Act as a tool for ensuring racial diversity and racial representation and as a check on gerrymandering. 
So ongoing fight there, but those are the latest updates. And that's all for this week's review of developments in our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin. Look forward to talking to you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.